If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 689. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. Wire there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class when you do enroll 10 Myths of American History and purchase a course or 20 there. You get great content and you keep the podcast free of charge. Also, if you're watching on YouTube, click on that little super thanks button under the video. Great way to support the show. Go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support or just click on the support tab while you're there. Another great way to support the show. You can throw a few pennies my way there or go to anchor.fm. You can subscribe there. All kinds of ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. All you got to do is email them to me. I do read them. I don't always respond, but I do read them. So I do appreciate all of your input, and I'd like to keep the show fresh. So your input helps do that. Now, let's talk about the topic of the day, and it is the American historical profession. Now, this is kind of in the weeds when I say that, it's for people that you know, maybe you're not in the historical profession. If you aren't, God bless you, right? But if you are, you might know about this already. But this is something that happened uh, beginning August 17th, so uh, a little less than a week ago as I'm recording this. You had the president of the AHA, James Sweet, write a little article in... Um, in their magazine, right, the AHA's magazine, and and the title of it is, Is History History? Now, what's amazing about this is just 20 years before this, there was another article in the same publication entitled Against Presentism, and this is essentially what the article is about. The question is, are historians engaging in too much presentism? And, of course, the answer to that is very easy, yes. Historians have been doing this for years. The response to this little article, which isn't really that offensive in any way, even if you're on the left, it shouldn't be, was what you expect, totalitarian uh, cancel culture. They want Sweet fired. They want his head. They want this guy gone because he dared contradict the mainstream totalitarian thought in the American historical profession. Now, several years ago, I did a podcast on an article that was published about how there's no conservatives in the American historical profession. Well, that's on purpose. The people that responded to this article are the same people that control hiring. They're the same people that control the journals, the professional journals. They're the same people that, in many cases, control publication houses, academic publication houses. These are the same people. And they don't want any kind of dissent from their accepted 3 by 5 as Tom Woods called it, index card of allowable opinion. They can't have it. And they can't have it because it would be too much of a threat to them. You see, historians are some of the most thin-skinned people out there. And the problem with that, of course, is that there is no debate anymore. There's no discussion. There's no inquiry. They can lob bombs 
saying this is really real history when in fact it's just presentism. And as, as Sweet points out, and I'm going to read his piece, as he points out, people, more people are getting into the modern, modern history than they are into anything pre-modern, right? Or anything that's, um, uh, when I say pre-modern, I'm talking about basically the, the, uh, in Europe, it would be the 18th century. Uh, but more or less, they're looking more at the 19th century and 20th century than anything. Uh, anything before that is, uh, is being ignored, or the, the numbers that are it, people uh, actually uh, getting into major fields of study in those areas is declining tremendously. But these other areas are increasing, and that's because people come in with agendas. Now, when I was in graduate school, I had a seminar with our chair at the time of the history department there at the University of South Carolina, and I remember talking about this in this reading seminar. And he said that he became a leftist because he studied history. I find that, I, I found that very hard to believe. He became a leftist because, or he was, he did leftist history because that's what he was. Uh, this man was not a leftist because he read history. He was a leftist because that's what he was. And he used history to fit his perspective. And this is generally what people do. Even the topics that people pick says something about who they are. And so as you see all these people rush into areas that are considered social justice areas, they're doing it for a couple of reasons. One, because they think they can get published. Two, because it's popular and trendy. Three, because they think they can get a job. And four, because this is what their preconceived notions about history are. Now, you could make the same accusation against me and say, well, you're a conservative, and so you do conservative stuff. And there's times I'm very open about my biases. This is, this is the Novik book, That Noble Dream, right? where there is no historical objectivity. There never has been, really. I mean, to think that there ever was objectivity is just complete garbage. But the fact is, you have the totalitarians in, in control now, and this presentism is awful. I mean, it really is awful. I, I don't think that you can ever say, though, even if you go to, back to people like Kenneth Stamp, uh, who was writing his uh, uh, history of slavery and the war. Kenneth Stamp was a neo-abolitionist, and Kenneth Stamp was very open, at least privately, about his biases. He didn't like, he called him uh, all of the uh, doe faces, like James Randall and Avery Craven. He didn't like those people. He thought they were awful. He thought they were producing bad history, and he wanted to counter that with his own history that was based on his own present views of race relations and society and politics. This is the way it's always been. Uh, you look at George Bancroft. I mean, there are very few, you go back to the 19th century, there have been very few objective histories. And historians have recognized this for centuries, right? Millennia. You go back to Thucydides, who recognized his reliance on his sources. He understood history was biased. You couldn't get around it. The Greeks knew all of this, right? So history has always been biased. The question is, who's going to control the profession? Because we have a profession now that hires people into positions that they teach in those universities and colleges. And so historians tend to like to be around people that think like them because it validates themselves. And the left is the worst for this because they are so insecure in their positions, and they realize, and see, this is the other thing, the left realizes the power of controlling the past has on the present. They control the past. This is George Orwell, who was a leftist, by the way, understanding that if you control the narrative of the past, 
then you control the present. And essentially what we're getting with the 1619 Project, which Sweet dares to say isn't really history, is that exact thing. You have a narrative that's being established, and they're writing history curriculum on this. And the point is to try to control the past to control the present. Because if you can change the way Americans think about society, and they think about uh, the past, and they think about people in the past, and they think about this group or that group, you control the present narrative. You can see it in conservatives. I've talked about it for the last week or so, and how you have the conservative movement essentially ostracizing John C. Calhoun because he can't fit their narrative and what they want to do. They have to pick these people for their narrative, and John C. Calhoun doesn't fit these people. This is where someone like Russell Kirk is superior because he recognized the influence of people that, well, people like Yoram Hazoni doesn't find very palatable because he was a slave owner, even though he also has other slave owners in the list. But Calhoun dared to say something positive about slavery. At the time, if you look at, again, this is, this is where presentism is playing a role in Hazoni. He can't look at Calhoun's situation and say, well, I mean, maybe you can understand what he's saying. He can't see beyond that, right? He's living in 19th century South Carolina, and he doesn't see beyond 19th century South Carolina. So he's going to say some things. And again, we could, we could have a discussion about Calhoun's position there and how it's just a modification of the necessary evil position, um, saying it in different terms. But um, it's the same thing in a way because he doesn't know what to do with it, right? He's looking at a at a group of people, he doesn't know what to do, and he thinks he's he thinks because of the time he's living in that actually he's having a positive effect on a group of people that he doesn't think would have these same kind of things happening for them had they lived somewhere else, right? So that's that's Calhoun as the 19th century South Carolinian. To understand Calhoun, you have to look at history from his own period. That's not presentism. Presentism would say that Calhoun said something positive about slavery, we have to ostracize him. He's no good. Even though he said a lot of other things that you could say, well, I mean, maybe he was right about these things, or he was right about these things. We can take the one and separate it from the other. This is where people get caught in these traps. And the presentists are only going to look for, and they're going to base everything they do off of present values, and did these people fit my present values? And if they don't, I can't love them as much. I can't even think they're great people. Another example, uh, you have, and I brought this up, you have Lauren Chavinsky writing, I think she's writing a book about the Adams family now, and she loved John Quincy Adams, but has to qualify because John Quincy Adams said some pretty racist things. And Annette Gordon-Reed chimes in and says, oh yeah, yeah, he does all these things. Uh, but, you know, because he had the right view about slavery, well then, John Quincy Adams is okay, you see. And so, this is where we get into these things, right? It's, 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 we're, we're picking people to like and not like because they had the right view about slavery based on our present understanding of the institution, based on our present understanding of race. That's what the problem is, right? And so Lincoln had the right view about slavery, supposedly, in 1863 because he said he wanted to get rid of it with the Emancipation Proclamation, though he really didn't. But he had the wrong view when it comes to colonization and race. So how do you deal with Lincoln? This is Lerone Bennett, Lincoln White, Lincoln's white dream. I mean, the, you get into all this stuff. This is the presentism that saturates history, and it leads you in different directions. And that's all that James Sweet is really talking about here. But of course, he's raked over the coals for this by the leftists. He says, 20 years ago in these pages, Lynn Hunt argued against presentism. She lamented historians' declining interest in topics prior to the 20th century, 
as well as our increasing tendency to interpret the past through the lens of the present. Hunt warned that this rising presentism threatened to put out put us out of business as historians. If history is little more than short-term identity politics defined by present concerns, wouldn't students be better served by taking degrees in sociology, political science, or ethnic studies instead? I mean, a great question. Yes. It's a great question. Now, let me, st- let me before I get into the rest of the piece, because of the vitriol that Sweet received, he offered a very limp-wristed uh, apology, right? Uh, he, he capitulated. Oh, I'm sorry I offended people. He shouldn't have done that. He should have just doubled down and said, look, this is what I think. But of course, people are calling for his head. They want him canceled. They want him gone. They want him out of the, they want him uh, resign. They want him to resign. They want him fired. These are all of the leftists in the profession who don't like people that actually say something that's against what they think. This is a sad thing about it. And all he's doing is just bringing up some stuff here that was all brought up 20 years ago, right? But see, lots changed in 20 years. 20 years ago, even in 2002, even though the leftists controlled so many things, they weren't as vocal as they are now. They didn't have the gusto they have now. They didn't have the, the, the platforms they do now to make this a real issue. They didn't have social media 20 years ago. That's where all of the vitriol started on social media. It was Twitter. And Phil Magnus did a nice piece about this. Um, I could probably go back and forth and maybe do another uh, another part of this tomorrow with looking at Phil Magnus's piece because it's a nice rejoinder to this. And he actually pulls out the social media accounts that said things. But I wanted to cover Sweet's piece by itself before I got into Phil Magnus. And so, again, maybe I'll do the Phil Magnus thing tomorrow. The discipline did not heed Hunt's warning. He, from 2003 to 2013, the number of PhDs awarded to students working on topics post-1800 across all fields rose 18%. Meanwhile, those working on pre-1800 topics declined by 4%. During this time, the Wall Street meltdown was followed by uh, plummeting undergraduate enrollments in history courses and increased professional interest in the history of contemporary socioeconomic topics. Then came Obama and Twitter and Trump. As the discipline has become more focused on the 20th and 21st centuries, historical analyses are contained within an increasingly constrained uh, tempor- temporality, or temporality, I should say. Our interpretations of the recent past collapse into the familiar terms of contemporary debates leaving little room for the innovative, counterintuitive interpretations. Again, I I agree with him 100%. As you study more and more 20th and 21st century history, that's how you're going to frame everything, right? Trump's a fascist. But you don't even have the background in that to understand it, right? So uh, uh, not understanding America first, not understanding any of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's no anchor to any of these things. And he, this is a man who is a historian of the Atlantic slave world. And what I mean by that is the broad context. You see, there was, a, there was a push in the 90s to do comparative history and to look at things in a broader context, a broader perspective. Uh, you know, we weren't just talking about the United States, we're talking about the Americas. And if we're going to talk about slavery, it's not just in, America, in the United States, it's also in the Americas, and it's in the African world. This is the Thornton book on slavery in the Atlantic world, right? It's not just North America. It's in the Atlantic world, and, it, and the Atlantic world involves Africa. And so what role did Africa have in these things? And actually, Sweet brings this up, and this is where people really got upset with him. This trend towards presentism is not confined to historians of the recent past. The entire discipline is lurching in this direction, including a shrinking minority working in pre-modern fields. 
If we don't read the past through the prism of contemporary social justice issues, race, gender, sexuality, nationalism, capitalism, are we doing history that matters? This is the question. This is what people are saying. This new history often ignores the values and mores of people in their own times, as well as change over time, uh, neutralizing the expertise that separates historians from those in other disciplines. The allure of political relevance, facilitated by social and other media, encourages a predictable sameness of the present and the past. This sameness is ahistorical, a proposition that might be acceptable if it produced positive political results, but it doesn't. So, again, he, look, Sweet's a leftist. He's saying, look, if all this stuff actually produced the positive political results we wanted, then okay, this would be fine, but it doesn't do that. And so all of this that we're doing is ahistorical. All this presentism is not real history. It's, it's looking at things based on this and trying to fit a narrative. You know what does? You know who did that? Karl Marx, of course. Karl Marx looked at history in reverse. This is where the Marxist influence and all these things, but these people are worse than the Marxists. The Marxists, at least, as, as Paul Gottfried points out, had some valuable things to say at, the, at times. These people don't. They don't have anything valuable to say. Uh, they are just writing polemics. They're writing op-eds all the time. This is all they're doing. And th those things have a place, don't get me wrong. But as history, not really. And, and I go back to the, to the Do book, Apostles of Disunion. The whole point of that book, he says it in the beginning, is to counteract the boogeyman of the lost cause. And this is where I find all this stuff so funny. People like me are dissident, right? We're, 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 when I say, we're, we're offering dissent. They, they can't allow us in because it, it threatens their worldview. And Dew's book, the whole point of it, again, a polemic against this boogeyman of the lost cause, which has no relevance, really, in the modern historical profession whatsoever. There are so few people doing anything that would be even closely called that, that it's laughable that you would have to write an entire book on this. But they have to have the straw man to knock over to make themselves feel better. You see, this is it. And this is what they do. The book is a polemic. A faulty one, because there's all kinds of holes in it. And when I say there's all kinds of holes, he does cherry pick. He leaves some things out and does other things. And there's nothing, Some of the things he says are, are, of course, correct. But he also leaves a lot of things out. And the context is missing. And that's essentially what Sweet is speaking to. The context is missing. He said, look, we have this problem. We have these SCV people. We have these lost causers. We have these people running around saying the war wasn't about slavery. So I'm going to write a book to show that the war was about slavery based on these things. And I'm going to knock down all these lost causers. He says it in the beginning of the book. That's the whole point of it. He's basically writing a polemic. He's writing an op-ed. He's making a case for something and leaving a lot of things out. In many places, history suffers everyday life. Uh, I'm sorry, suffuses everyday life as presentism. America is no exception. We suffer from an overabundance of history, not as method or analysis, but as anachronistic data points for the articulation of competing politics. The war, uh, the history is part of the political war now. Uh, and and it's, it's front and center. How we think about the past determines how we think about the present, and of course, how we vote. This is, this is, again, it's George Orwell. And historians, particularly modern historians, realize it, and so this is why they're always pushing it, right? The consequences of this new history are everywhere. I traveled to Ghana for two months this summer to research and write. My first assignment was a critical response to the 1619 Project, a new origin story, for a forthcoming forum in the American Historical Review. Whether or not historians believe that there is anything new in the New York Times project created by Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project is a best-selling book that sits at the center of current controversies over how to teach American history. 
As journalism, the project is powerful and effective. But is it history? This is where he really got into trouble. Because he's saying it's really not history. It's journalism. This is the exact same thing Nicole Hannah-Jones said it was. She said this isn't history. It's journalism. Sweet says, when I first read the newspaper series that preceded the book, I thought of it as a synthesis of the tradition of black nationalist historiography dating to the 19th century, with Tanishi Coates' recent call for reparations. Ooh, you just really stepped into it there, because you said it's really nothing new here, this is just black nationalism from the 19th century. Which, from a historical perspective, is entirely correct. That's all it is. But, of course, it has a political motivation. Jones and others know that the political climate is ripe for this kind of interpretation, making headway into America and having a political impact. So that's why they're doing it. It wouldn't have worked 20 years ago. It's working now. 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, you still have people like Arthur Schlesinger writing The Disuniting of America, attacking this kind of stuff from the left. Now the left has embraced these kind of things, and so now the political climate is right for something like this to come out and have an impact. The project spoke to a political moment, but I never thought of it as primarily a work of history. Ironically, it was professional historians' engagement with the work that seemed to lend its historical legitimacy. Then the Pulitzer Center, in partnership with the Times, developed a secondary and school curriculum around the project. Local school boards protested characterizations of Washington, Jefferson, and Madison's unpatriotic owners of forced labor camps. Conservative lawmakers decided that if it was the history of slavery being taught in schools, the topic shouldn't be taught at all. This was it, right? This is how we're going to teach it. Then don't teach it. For them, challenging the founders' positions as timeless tribunes of liberty was racially divisive. At each of these junctures, history was a zero-sum game of heroes and villains viewed through the prism of contemporary racial identity. It was not an analysis of people's ideas in their own time, nor a process of change over time. And I think that's where, you know, Sweet is correct about this. this is, it, was a neat, it, was a, it was a reaction to it, right? This thing comes out. It has all this stuff that's being said, as he said, coming out of the, basically the black national school of the 19th century. And then you have this reaction to it because you're saying that these people are owning forced labor camps. It's like they're concentration camps. These people are Nazis, essentially. And can, Americans aren't going to tolerate that. This led to the reaction from the Trump, uh, the 1776 Commission, right, which uh, did a poor job of articulating a real American history. I mean, these people were cherry-picking just as bad as the 1619 people. You see, there's no analysis. It's all about politics. This is, this is where I think that Sweet is going with this. They're both bad, and they're both two sides of the same coin. That's what I've said from the beginning. In Ghana, I traveled to Elmina for a wedding, a small, a small seaside fishing village. Elmina was home to one of the largest Atlantic slave trading de uh, depots in West Africa. Elmina, Elmina. The morning after the wedding, a small group of us met for breakfast at the hotel. We, as we waited for several members of our party to show up, a group of African Americans began trickling into the breakfast bar. By the time they all gathered, more than a dozen members of the same family, three generations deep, pulled together the restaurant's tables to dine. Sitting on the table in front of one of the elders was a dog-eared copy of the 1619 Project. Later that afternoon, my family and I toured Elmina Castle alongside several Ghanaians, a Dane, and a Jamaican family. Our guide gave a well-rehearsed tour geared toward African Americans. American influence is everywhere, from memorial plaques to wreaths and flowers left on the floors of the castle's dungeons. Arguably, Elmina Castle is now as much an African American shrine as a Ghanaian archaeological historical site. 
As I reflected on the breakfast earlier that morning, I could only imagine the affirmation and bonding experienced by the large African-American family through the memorialization of ancestors lost to slavery at Elmina Castle, but also through the story of African-American resilience, redemption, and the demand for reparations in the 1619 Project. So this is vanilla, right? He's, he's saying, I can imagine the pain that people felt here. Tucker Carlson, in his uh, most recent book, had an essay he wrote years ago where he went to the same spot. And it's an interesting story he talks about. He went with uh, Al Sharpton, and, and uh, I think Jesse Jackson was there. He went there with these people, and he said it was one of the most amazing experiences he's ever had. He and Al Sharpton bonded over this. It was really quite interesting, this, this uh, essay he has in it. But the, he's, so, so Sweet is saying, I can understand. He has empathy. I can understand what's going on here. I can see what's happening. I can see how this would be a powerful image for people. Very powerful image. And anybody can. Anybody can sim- say, ah, I can see how this could be powerful. But you're missing the whole context, he says. This is the next paragraph. Yet as a historian of Africa and the African diaspora, I am troubled by the historical erasures and narrow politics that these narratives convey. Less than 1% of the Africans passing through Almina arrived in North America. The vast majority went to Brazil and to the Caribbean. Should the guide story differ with a tour of a tour for a tour of no African Americans? Likewise, would the 1619 project, project tell a different story if it took into consideration that the shipboard kin of Jamestown's 20 and odd Africans also went to Mexico, Jamaica, and Bermuda? These are questions of historical interpretation, but present-day political ones follow. Do efforts to claim a usable African-American past reify elements of American hegemony and exceptionalism, such narratives aim to dismantle? Big questions. But again, it's not putting in... The lefties got very upset about this. How dare you say these things? How dare you put this in... How dare you put Africans at the center of any of this? You can't do that, right? The Almina Tura guide claimed that Ghanaians sent their servants into chattel slavery unknowingly. The guide makes no reference to warfare, indigenous slavery, historians that interpret assumptions of ancestral connection between modern-day Ghanaians and visitors from the diaspora. Similarly, the forthcoming film The Woman King seems to suggest that Dahomey's female warriors and King Gizo fought the European slave trade. In fact, they promoted it. Historically accurate rendering of Asante or Dahomeyan greed and enslavement apparently contradict modern-day political imperatives. I mean, this he just blasted the entire narrative of modern-day slavery out of the water in that paragraph. He's saying, look, this is the problem, right? We've, your, your, your interpretation is completely bad, but people are going to go watch these movies, and they're going to read the 1619 Project, and they have no context. They, they don't know. They don't know this is complete fabrication. It's roots, Right? It's Django and change. This is the stuff you're getting. And this is what people think is history. They watch the film. Well, that's history. It's fiction. It's fantasy. Hollywood need not adhere to historians' methods any more than journalists or tour guides, but bad history yields bad politics. The erasure of slave-trading African empires in the name of political unity is uncomfortably like right-wing conservative attempts to erase slavery from school curricula in the United States, also in the name of unity. I agree. Right? I agree. It shouldn't be done on either side. These interpretations are two sides of the same coin, as I've said before. If history is only these stories from the past that confirm current political positions, all manner of political hacks can claim historical expertise. Exactly right. This is a beautiful piece. And it's unfortunate he had to give this, or he felt compelled to give this apology. He should never apologize for any of this. But he's working in the establishment. And when you work in the establishment, you can't say true, th- true things. 
because you are then public enemy number one. Too many Americans have become accustomed to history, to the, uh, to the idea of history as an evidentiary grab bag to articulate their political positions, a trend that can be seen in recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. The word history appears 95 times in Clarence Thomas's majority opinion overturning New York's concealed carry gun law. Likewise, Samuel Alito invokes history 67 times in his opinion overturning Roe v. Wade. Despite amicus briefs written by professional historians in both cases, including one co-authored by the AHA and the Organization of American Historians, the course majority deploys only those pieces of historical evidence that support their preconceived political biases. Okay. I've said, look, the problem. I've said Clarence Thomas's decision was bad, and uh, in, in, uh, in his majority opinion was bad. And Alito's didn't go far enough in what Thomas pointed out in his concurring uh, uh, opinion. Uh, Thomas's opinion was actually more prescient and right on than Alito's was, right? But this is because it was based more on law than anything else. The majority decisions are historical. I mean, in this case, Sweet is saying, look, I mean, he's a leftist. He's one, he's one of you guys, right? He's saying, I don't agree with these, uh, these Supreme Court opinions. They're ahistorical. In the concealed carry case, Justice Thomas cherry-picks historical data, casting aside restrictions in English common law as well as historical examples of limitations on gun rights in the United States illustrates so-called tradition of individual gun ownership rights. Now, again, you're not looking at it from a Federalist position. This is the real problem with the whole thing, and they're distorting the 14th Amendment. That's the, that's the issue more than anything else. He's, he's getting into something else. Then Thomas uses this historical evidence to support his interpretation of the original meanings of the Second Amendment as it was written in 1791, including the right of individuals, not a well-regulated militia, to conceal and carry automatic pistols. Now, I could disagree with, with Sweet here that there was something to this. In fact... I could even use the lefties to support his to, to go with Thomas, and that would be uh, Charles Sumner back in the 1850s arguing a position on the Second Amendment that would be identical to what uh, is being argued today in the 1850s. And I don't think Sumner was, I mean, he wasn't being ahistorical. He was being practical about what he was saying. Uh, and in my next class, Radical Republicans, I cover that. In Dobbs v. Jackson, Justice Leto ignores legal precedents pu uh, punishing abortion only after quickening, including an unbroken tradition of prohibiting, abor prohibiting abortion on, on pain of criminal punishments persisted from the earliest days of the common law until 1973. He says this is not history. In his dissent to NYSRPA v. Bruin, Justice Stephen Breyer disparagingly labels the majority's approach law office history. He recognizes that historians engage in research methods and interpretive approaches incompatible with solving modern-day legal, political, economic questions. As such, he argues that history should not be the primary measure of adjudicating contemporary legal issues. Well, uh, no, but the Constitution should. And basically, if you get into originalism, then you have to get into some history here. I mean, you're going to have to do some of this stuff, right? But more importantly, you're going to have to look at it, okay... Did were these things set aside for the states? Were these things set aside for the federal government? If it's if it's not, then that's where you go with that. And then the states can litigate all this stuff based on history or however they want to do it, right? That comes into play there. We're talking about federal issues, and what Sweet can't get, and nobody really can get, is that, and even these justices, is that this is a federal versus state power issue. That's all it is, and that's how it should be left. And then let the legislatures and the people in the states deal with this stuff. 
Professional historians would do well to pay attention to Breyer's admonition. The present has been creeping up into our discipline for a long time. Doing history with integrity requires us to interpret elements of the past, not through the optics of the present, but within the worlds of our historical actors. Now, I will say something about Sweet here. He's kind of engaging in what he says he doesn't want to do by saying, look, we have this is... This, these people were presentists in some ways, and they were using history, but they were coming at it from a perspective, well, this is where uh, I think, and I'm going to cherry-pick stuff to fit this. I mean, the, the, his profession and even his side is just as guilty as anybody else. And those pieces that, I, I just failed to say this, say it now, those pieces that he's talking about are troubling because they do the exact same thing. Right? They're not looking at everything. Uh Historical questions often emanate out of present concerns, but the past interprets, challenge, interrupts challenges and contradicts the present in unpredictable ways. History is not a tool for the articulation of an ideal imagined future. Rather, it is a way to study the messy, unproven process of change over time. When we foreshorten or shape history to justify rather than inform contemporary political positions, we not only undermine the discipline, but threaten its very integrity. Well, I agree with that last statement. Um... And basically, that's what we've been doing now for a very long period of time. He's not been creeping. This has been something, as Novick pointed out, uh, uh, gosh, you know, almost 30 years ago. This has been something that's been around for a long time. It's not something new. It's just that some of these people are starting to recognize it now because they think that the, this is, I mean, that, that people weren't doing this before. They always have been. And that's the real issue. Uh, in fact, what they would say is all the lost causes have been doing it for a long time, and they're trying to correct that with real history. But what they're doing is then taking, you know, for example, in that one area, then they're taking their own present views and putting it here, and it just becomes a big mess. All right, so I thought this was a good piece because it's something I've talked about before, and perhaps tomorrow I'll cover the Magnus uh, article because Phil Magnus does a good job bringing out some of the stuff that was said about this. So I'll see you next time with the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. 